listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. My name is Tyler. I am one of the pastors here, and we, this morning, are going to continue our look at the Gospel of John. We'll be in John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. And this is the end of Jesus' farewell discourse. If you're wondering what that is, it is his farewell discourse. He's saying goodbye. It's all of the things he wants them to know for really the very last time as he is with them on earth before his death and his resurrection. As you're making your way there, I do want to share that our youth group just got back last week from our summer retreat. It was a wonderful time. Find a youth student that went on it and asked them about it, it will be extremely encouraging to you. It was very encouraging to me. But as, as we were there, especially in the final days, it's really hard not to look back at your own experiences. So I grew up going to a church camp in Beattyville, Kentucky. Don't look it up. Um, but that's where we went year after year after year. And up on this mountain in the hills of Kentucky, Uh, I just felt like as a young person, I would go there and I would meet with the Lord, and it was almost like a a type of refuge for me every summer. But towards the end of camp, I would always have these feelings of of anxiety, of kind of fear of leaving my refuge and going back into the the regular world. And maybe you have felt that before, just the fear of, of leaving, maybe an intimate, safe place where you have met with the Lord maybe on a deeper level than you have before or maybe you have that entire year before that moment and you're scared to go back into the world because you know that there's going to be the temptation to old sins. There's going to be just the general brokenness of the world and maybe the family that you are returning into and just the general anxiety of potentially feeling more distant from God than you do in this moment. Well, I I think that probably all of us have felt that in some way or another. And if we have felt that way, can you imagine what the disciples felt as Jesus is giving them this farewell address? How horrible this moment at times must have felt. Well, John in his gospel tells us that at times their hearts were troubled. And so as we look at this text... What are we to do when we're tempted toward hopelessness or doubt or anxiety or distress because of the very, 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 very real troubles of the world? So, John chapter 16, verses 25 through 33 here. Jesus begins by saying, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will scatter each to his own home and will leave me alone. 
Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So let's pray, and then we will dig in together. Father God, I pray that you would be with our time. I pray, Lord, that you would use your word to save unbelieving sinners and encourage those who have placed their faith in you, and that you would do all of this for your glory and for our good, and it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. So if I had to summarize this sermon in one sentence, it would be this. Though you will suffer and face troubles in this life, you can have courage and no peace because Jesus has overcome the world and conquered sin and death. So I want to tease out three realities from this short passage of Scripture that come from the reality of Jesus' overcoming the world. The first thing is this. Jesus tears down the veil between God and man. So let me set the context. Like I said, Jesus has been in the upper room. They have just celebrated the Passover. He has brought his disciples at this moment that was completely foreign to them. He washes their feet, and he portrays what it is to serve. He, at one point, uh, tells them that one of them is going to betray them. And, by the way, they never learn who it is until they actually see who it is. Their line of questioning reveals, at one point, that they're all really clueless as to who this person is. So Judas Iscariot goes out. We, because we have the Bible, know that it's him. But here they are, left sitting, knowing only that one of them will betray Jesus. At one point, he turns to Peter and says, hey, I love your enthusiasm, but you, this very night, are going to reject me. And then on top of that, he tells them, "Uh, I'm going to die, and I'm going to go to the Father, and you're going to stay here, and I'm going to give you a helper. You haven't had this helper yet, but the helper is coming, but I have to leave first before the helper comes, so just hang tight. All is well. Okay, well, as we come to our section, it's about midnight. You think they're doing real well? No. Nobody does well at midnight anyways, let alone having heard all of these things, right? So here they are, the disciples, in the upper room, and they have very real concerns about a very real hostile world. We've seen so much of the example of Jesus living his life and his ministry and being hated for it. And at times, Jesus says, hey, if they hated me, they're going to hate you just like this. This is where they are. This is how the farewell discourse ends. And so we have to ask the question, okay, well then, what now? So the first thing is Jesus tears down the veil between God and man. So as he concludes his time with them, he gives kind of an overarching encouragement for really everything that has happened in his entire ministry, but certainly all of the teaching in his discourse. He gives them this encouragement. There is an hour that is coming when what is not understood by you will be understood by you. So the hour he is referring to is his glorification. In John chapter 20, verse 22, we see very clearly that he comes to them, he presents himself to the disciples after his resurrection, and it says that he breathes the Holy Spirit into the disciples. This is the hour that we know of that they are waiting for. And he says, wait for that moment, because all of this is going to make sense, because I will give you the helper that I've been talking about. And so what does the helper do? Jesus says very clearly in his discourse multiple times that the helper is going to guide you into all truth. And in fact, he's going to take what is from the Father that has been given to the Son, and he's going to declare it to you. 
So there is coming a moment when all of this will make sense because the work of God through the Spirit will reveal these things to you. Hang in there, brothers. But he goes on to reiterate how their relationship with God the Father is going to change in his absence. We we can't remove the context of this passage from the fact that all of these things are being said to them because he's about to leave them. The man that they have walked with for almost three years is about to depart from this world, and they will have him no longer. I mean, that's plenty enough time to see Jesus as your security blanket. To be, yes, sold out for him, and yet still be at times confused and completely reliant on him as he stands by your side. And so what they're facing is Jesus saying, I'm I'm leaving. I'm not going to be here anymore for for you in this world. I'm not going to be walking alongside of you and explaining things, sometimes in parables, but then we'll step aside and I'll explain those things. You're at times not going to get it, Peter, Uh, but that's what I'll do for you. Well, it doesn't really seem like a big deal to us when Jesus is telling them, hey, there's coming a time when I'm gone that I'm not going to ask God for your prayers. You can go to him. And so as we think about what Jesus is revealing to them, we're like, yeah, this is no big deal. We, we completely understand what a personal relationship with God looks like. But for these disciples, they have no idea and they have no way of imagining what their relationship would look like with the Father after the Son leaves. This was unheard of. So go to, well, actually, we may not have time. Just I'll read them and you trust that I'm not lying to you. This is what the Bible says. They're on the screen. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. This is after Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden and uh, they have disobeyed God, they have received the curse, and at the end, Jesus, or God says this, he's, he, or Moses says this about God. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, immediately in Genesis chapter 3, mankind, their relationship with God is broken, and they now live as a driven out, sent away people. Isaiah chapter 59, 2 explains the theology of it like this. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Well, then we go to Exodus, and we see that God has created this covenant with the people of Israel. He has collected a nation to himself to reflect himself to the whole world, And this is the reality that they live in, that the disciples also live in. And here's what it is. Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 19. He says, Now, when all the people saw the thunder, sorry, context, he's coming down off the mountain of Sinai to give them the Ten Commandments. That's where we are. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. So a personal relationship for these disciples with God the Father is unthinkable. To be in a personal relationship with Him, to dwell with Him in His presence in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, is death. And here is Jesus telling them, hey, I'm, when I go to the Father, I'm not going to ask him. You ask him yourself. Well, friends, what Jesus is saying is that he is the, 
the new and great and final mediator between God and man who will bring his disciples into the presence of God. Jesus is telling them, I will not be a barrier between you and God. I will be a constant and eternal sign of your righteousness. I won't have to block you off from his glory. I'm going to invite you into it. What Jesus is saying in this moment that he will accomplish by his death and resurrection is that, yes, though, Genesis chapter 3, the curses that are given, pain in childbirth, awful soil to farm, death, yes, those things stand, but as far as being driven out and sent off people that cannot stand to even look to the presence of God, you will now, by Christ, be brought in to live there. Your new dwelling place is with the Father because of what I will do for you. So how did this happen? Well, Jesus says very clearly here in verses 25 through 28 that it's because God loved his disciples and was pleased by their love of the Son. It's that simple. This is John 3.16 in real time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What he's saying is that these things will be true for you. This will be your reality. As I leave you and go to be with the Father, I will invite you to him. Why? Because, dear disciple, God loved you, and you believed in me, and I gave you life. In chapter 6, verse 40, he says, This is the will of my Father, that all who would look to the Son might believe and receive eternal life. Friends, this is the gospel truth, that we can do nothing to work our way into the presence of God. We can do nothing to restore the good graces of Genesis before the fall. It will only and ever be what Christ has done for fallen man that we might live in harmony and at peace with God. And outside of Him, we are still roaming about the earth as driven out people. And so what Jesus encourages them is, I leave, this is not a death sentence to you, this is a life sentence for you. Friends, is this true for you? Is this your reality? Have you looked upon the Son of, Jesus, uh, the, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and confessed your sin and repented and believed in His name? And have you received eternal life? Do you believe with every fiber of your being that He is yours and that you are His? Is that true for you? So often what we're tempted to do is equate assurance with performance. And so we become discouraged or something happens in our life and And our our faith just doesn't feel as strong as it once was. And so what we end up doing is we look at how how well we're living the Christian life. and, And then we equate our assurance of salvation with how good we're doing. And we always do it in the moment when we're doing the worst. And so our assurance always falters because it's always when we're doing bad that we question. But that is so completely backwards. Friends, as the world presses in on us, 
as believers in Jesus Christ, our only hope is that we have been bought by the blood of the Son. And that now, even now, in the midst of all that is happening around us and all that is happening to us, because of Christ, our life is hidden with God in Him. Oh, friends, it's your only hope. As the disciples are looking at what they're facing, there is only one hope. And if it's true for them, it's certainly true for us. Our assurance is in Christ. And if you're a believer, let me just give you a little test as to whether you believe that or not. As we read through the Gospel of John or any of the Gospels and we look at the lives of the disciples and, for instance, we come and we have the completed Scriptures and so when Jesus comes walking on the water and invites Peter out into the ocean, what do we do? Peter, trust him, go! It's going to be fine. You're going to walk on the water. We know you're not drowning. But for Peter, he doesn't have the completed picture yet. He has only faith. But we as people of faith can look at him and say, it's going to be fine because it's Jesus. We look at the disciples and we just time and time again want to scream into the Bible, you can trust him. He will keep you. His promises will stand for you. And yet we look at ourselves and our circumstances and our lives And the next thing you know, we're Peter walking onto the water and sinking. Why? Not because Jesus won't do what he's promised, but because we've placed our assurance in the wrong thing. Brothers, as I leave this world, know that your only hope is me. Praise God for that. Praise God for that truth for everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, for all of us, while our eternal dwelling place is in heaven, we still live here. And so, the second thing is this. Jesus gives us peace to live in a world of tribulation. That's actually point three. Mark that out. I'm so sorry. If it was me, I'd crumble up the whole thing and restart. (laughs) Point two. Jesus secures salvation for the imperfect by his perfect obedience. Seems like that's probably a necessary second step before we get to point three anyways. So verses 29 through 32, we see that Jesus has just told them these things and he says, hey, I, I, um, I, I got to go back to the Father. I came from him and now I'm, I'm returning. And the disciples, they make a true, a very true and yet very shallow profession to Jesus. It's true because, yes, he is the Son of God who has come, and you are right to believe these things about him. And yet, it's shallow because they are claiming to know things that Jesus just told them they won't know until the hour comes. But friends, this is, this is encouraging for us that this moment happened because Jesus secures salvation for the imperfect by his perfect obedience. If you need to know who the imperfect are, look to your left, look to your right, and let them tell you it's you. It's it's us. We're, We're the ones who are making the shallow profession of faith. But here's the thing that remains true for them. They say a a, a 
true thing that really anybody could say, and then they say a shallow thing, because even in, in verse 12 of chapter 16, he tells them, hey, there's many more things I want to tell you, but you can't receive them now because you won't understand them. And they're like, oh, cool, Jesus, we understand them all. What are you talking about? I just told you you can't. This is who he's dealing with. And it's, it's, it's those people that one thing in the midst of their ignorance remains true, and that is that they are still counted righteous. He teaches them that saving grace is in no way reliant on human effort, nor is it extinguished by human folly and failure. If God wants to save you, He will save you because he has loved you. And you will love him because he first loved you. Friends, this is good news for us. Smile. And it's immediately after that that he says, you know, it's interesting too because he doesn't say, you disciples are going to scatter He says, each of you. At this point, there's no question who is going to make this infraction against the Lord. Each of you, when the time comes, will be scattered to his home. What's he talking about? Well, it's pretty clear that after we go into chapter 17 and Jesus prays and then he's betrayed and he is arrested and taken to stand before Pilate, and Caiaphas, the high priest, that his disciples won't be there by his side anymore. That he will go through all of these things alone and by himself. That for three years, as he has, with compassion and grace and mercy, lived his life with them, they will scatter. And yet, one thing remains true. They are counted as righteous. Why? Why? Why can they make this huge error that we just want to scream at them and say, don't do this. Stay with him. Peter, don't let the little girl bully you. Stand firm. We know how all of this ends. And so why are they still counted righteous? Well, it's because of only one thing. Because Jesus will die and he will be raised for them. Verse 32, he tells them, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So what he is saying to them is that the Father will not forsake me in this hour. But do you know what that means? If the Father won't forsake Jesus into his arrest, into his death, and into his resurrection, it means that the Father will also not forsake his plan of redemption. The the plan that God had from eternity past to take sinners like me and you and bring us to himself by his Son. And so if he's not willing to forsake his Son, and he's not willing to forsake his plan of redemption, then that means he is not willing to forsake us at the cross. 
Jesus will still die for people who don't deserve it. Jesus will still die and he will still raise for people who will not stand with him when the time comes. Because salvation is a work of God in Christ alone. And guess what? We get to believe that it's true for us. We get to cry out in repentance and place our faith in a Christ we don't deserve. And in a Christ, you will multiple times in your life fail. Point three. Jesus gives us peace to live in a world of tribulation. So verse 33, he ends like this. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So I want us to note the the definitive tone in Jesus' words here. There's absolutely no uncertainty to what he is encouraging them with. This is the last word of the farewell discourse. They will go from this place. They will go into the garden. Jesus will pray. They will fall asleep. He will be betrayed. He will go and he will be brought before the authorities. He will be deemed as worthy of a cross. And friends, here we are in the upper room at midnight. By 3 a.m., he's dead. By 9 a.m., or excuse me, by 3 a.m., he's standing before them. By 9 a.m., he's dead. Nine hours, he's dead. And, and in, in the remaining time they have after this moment, they fall asleep and they scatter. This is your last chance to be with him. This is your last chance to be encouraged by him. And he knows all of this. There's no uncertainty in his mind whatsoever as to what is going to happen in the immediate future, but also for eternity. In a moment, in a sentence, he seeks to set them at peace with what will happen. But here's where we can get confused at times. And here's where this passage can be abused at times. Jesus' promise isn't the promise of a peaceful life. That you will go from this place and things will be peaceful for you. No. Jesus' promise is the provision of peace in the midst of certain trouble. He not for a moment lies to them about what life will look like after he goes to the Father. And so what does he tell them to do? He says, you can have peace in this life and with all of its troubles, even though for sure tribulation will come into your life. And so then he does the only thing that can make sense. He says, take heart. 
What can you imagine? All of the things that you have just heard. Still trying to figure out who's the one that is going to sell Jesus. Peter sitting there thinking, you just told me I'm going to take heart? How? Think about it. When, when you get a cancer diagnosis, Jesus would tell you, take heart. When you're suffering a divorce or you're facing abandonment, Jesus would say, take heart. When you're weeping and pleading with the Lord over that wayward child, Jesus says, take heart. Oh, friends, every day that you wake up with your chronic illness and you take your medicine or you draw your blood or do all of the things that you have to do that remind you of the pain that you're in, that you have to do with pain to even know that you're in pain, what would Jesus say to do? He would say, take heart. When you're facing abuse, maybe currently or in your past, and you're wondering, how do I understand what has happened? How do I make sense of this? How can I go on with my life? Jesus would say, take heart. And when you are just every day of your life struggling with depression and anxiety and the weight that it casts over your life and thinking that you will never find joy again, Jesus would look to you and he would say, take heart. Why? How? How dare you, Jesus, tell us that? In this life that we live, with all of the things that we face, how dare you tell us to take heart? And yet he does, and he can. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, we see this picture of what happens at the moment of Jesus' resurrection. So John, seeing his vision from the angel, says this, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God." And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. Oh, believer, on this earth, we will face Satan's schemes. Even now, he roams about like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. You will face the schemes of the devil, the devil, no doubt. But we face them knowing that he's an enemy already conquered. Why can you take heart? Because every accusation that the devil brings before you falls away like chaff. God does not even entertain them for a moment. Why? Because Christ stands as a constant and eternal sign of what he has done for you. That your sin has been accounted to him and his righteousness has been given to you. And so in the midst of all of these things, nothing, nothing can overcome you. 
J.C. Ryle, a pastor in England in the 19th century, said this, The sorrows and losses and crosses and disappointments of our life may often make us feel sorely cast down, but let them only make us tighten our hold on Christ. Believer, though you will certainly suffer, though we will suffer at times greatly and face many troubles in this life, you can have courage and know peace because God loves you, Christ secures you, and all the while the Spirit will guide you. It's what Jesus promised to his disciples as he was leaving to go be with the Father and as they were to stay here. And now our responsibility is to share this with the whole world. And unbeliever, if you are here today and for any reason the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, has, has allowed you to hear these things for the first time, we want to rejoice with you. But we want to tell you that the Christian life is really, really hard. And that you will suffer many things in this life. And yet, our prayer is that just like us, you will be able to claim that I will stand because of Christ. I will stand in this life and not even death can overcome me because he holds my place in heaven forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. I pray that you would work these truths into our hearts. Lord, on behalf of all of the believers in this room, I pray and I plea with you that you would draw unbelievers to yourself, that you would give them this hope, that you would allow them to feel and to know this peace that comes only from you, to face, Lord, an awful world. Father, we're grateful that you have seen fit in your loving kindness to save those of us who have turned to you. Well, Father, you drew us to yourself. In a moment that was completely unexpected to us, you drew us. You breathed the spirit of life into us. And Father, because of that, oh, we can place our faith in you fully and wholly. And we can have assurance in this life and forevermore because of what Christ has done for us. Praise your name. Thank you, Lord. Be with us now as we depart from this place. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.